I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and, in essence, catch up on our cinema. So it is the month of August 2022, and all month long, uh, the theme this month has been covering contemporary releases. Uh, So essentially, we've been focusing exclusively on reviewing films uh, that were released in the year of 2022. Um, Last month, we actually covered films from roughly 20 years ago, so 2002, but uh, we decided to transition pretty seamlessly into uh, movies 20 years down the line, uh, which brings us to today. Uh, So you may have noticed, uh, it is once again just me uh, behind the mic this time around. Uh, Kyle had some real-life shit. I catch up with him this week, so uh, it's just going to be me. Uh, So I'm going to take advantage of the opportunity and review uh, review something that uh, Kyle more than likely would get absolutely nothing out of, and therefore the conversation probably wouldn't really go anywhere interesting. Uh, Hopefully I can pull this off by myself. But um, that being said, um, today I'm going to be reviewing... um, a film that I have not heard talked about at all. Uh, I don't even know if this made theaters, to be honest. Uh, if it did, probably not that many. Uh, the film in question is Memory from 2022, and this is directed by Martin Campbell. Uh, and that's largely why I went out of my way to watch this, because, um, like I said, this is not a, a well-publicized film. I, I haven't read a whole lot of reviews for it. I really only came to know about it because... Uh, my buddy Brad uh, from the Cinema Speak podcast, he and I do a monthly episode here on Catching Up on Cinema called uh, Catching Up on Blu-ray, uh, wherein we take a look at the upcoming DVD, Blu-ray, and 4K releases for each calendar month. And I remember this one jumping out at me just because, uh, one, it's it's Liam Neeson in a movie called Memory. That Okay, you already got me somewhat interested. I'm, I'm a, I will bite for Liam Neeson. I'm a, I'm a mark for Neeson um, for a variety of reasons, but um, Martin Campbell as director was like, oh, that might not just be total crap. As I think we're all aware that um, in the post-taken years anyway, um, Liam Neeson has been somewhat prone to starring in outright crap. Um, he's done some good work as well, but uh, you know, quite a lot of it is also straight up crap. Um, anyway, um, Martin Campbell, like I said, was kind of the selling point for me that led to me, instead of just like skipping right over it completely, um, I decided, you know, I I think I'd like to check that out. So, um, I'll, uh, I'll give us a little bit of production background on this one. I have very, very, very little, um, I didn't do any research for this one, uh, just like a I skimmed over the Wikipedia page. That's kind of the extent of any insight I might be able to provide. But um, apparently uh, this film, Memory, from 2022, uh, is actually an adaptation. Um, and if you look at just the, the basic like um, major bullet points in the, <clears throat> in the proceedings, it seems like it's fairly faithful, at least in the in a very broad sense, like from a structural standpoint, like the major things that happen and the, and like the major character relationships seem to be fairly well preserved. But, um, yeah, apparently this is an adaptation of a novel, uh, which in turn was previously adapted to film, uh, in the form of a film by the name of the Alzheimer's case, uh, from the year 2003. Um, and I believe it's a Dutch film. Oh, that's funny. 
Um, and yeah, uh, apparently, like I said, the the structure, at least the major events in the plot, uh, are very very similar. I did read a plot summary of the Alzheimer's case, and it it bears some resemblance. But um, I was kind of surprised by that. I was, there's certain aspects of this movie that I I f- I was kind of shocked to learn uh, came from a novel. Um, but then when I, I looked a little bit deeper into it, it's like oh hmm, maybe maybe that does make sense. Uh, maybe a a European perspective uh, transposed onto a, a Americanized story um, is is what results in some of the oddities uh, in the events in the film. Like some of the things that stand out is like, hmm, you wouldn't expect to find that in a conventional uh, American action thriller or something. Uh, by the way, this movie is not particularly action heavy, if that's why you're tuning in. I know the uh, the one trailer I saw in the YouTubes uh, certainly made it out to have a little bit more punching um, than you would have expected. But um, yeah, as far as I know, um, like I said, it's it's based on adaptation of a of a novel as well as a European film, a Dutch film. Um, and the <laughs> a fun fact um, is that uh, this is yet another in the seeming seemingly long line of. Uh, shot in Bulgaria movies meant to meant to portray uh, Mexico. Um, I've been noticing that. I mean, I, I watch a lot of Scott Adkins movies. I watch I watch a lot of uh, Twilight Years, um, Sylvester Stallone movies. Uh, I have I'm very comfortable with watching movies uh, filmed in Bulgaria. It's it's one of those things that you just the texture of it. Uh, is beca- is beginning to become unmistakable to me, where it's like, a, mm, I think this is a shot in Bulgaria movie, and then you look it up, and it's like, yeah, uh, definitely. Um, but what's curious about these is that, and this is me talking directly out my ass, and I hope this isn't like inflammatory in, in any sense, but um, I noticed there there's a, a kind of a trend, at least in American cinema, anyway, of uh, of these action thriller quote action thriller movies that seem to be like viciously hypercritical of of mexico in particular um maybe maybe just like south america or south of the border states in general but um like viciously critical and fearful of of mexico and you know cartels and whatnot but also seemingly playing to the playing to that demographic (laughs) It's a it's a weird vibe that what that I get from some of these movies. Um, uh, and if if you don't if you can't follow my logic, I'll, I'll just point out that as many problems as a lot of people had with a uh, Rambo: Last Blood, I didn't particularly enjoy that movie. I mean, it has some good bloodletting, but yeah, there's there's some there's some iffy uh, sociological and and political themes at work there. Um, uh, but you know, at least it has good bloodletting. At the very least, give me that. If I'm gonna watch fucking Rambo Five, uh, after Rambo Four was actually like a legit kind of good movie, um, the Rambo nobody asked for. Rambo Five, um, and that ending, man, um, didn't need to end it that way. That that final shot was like, oof, Stallone, your uh, your ego is still showing even after all these decades of continually being humbled. Um, that guy's in that guy's in a sh- like a rough spot right now, man. Like he's he's on the social media pimping out his daughters and uh, 
yelling about how they t- they took my boy uh yelling about how the 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 rights to creed and drago and rocky balboa are all being yanked away from him he's a very angry old man these days i will still watch pretty much anything he does but man he's really heated anyway coming back to where i i think i started this is really hard um doing a podcast in one breath just so you know um i i remember very specifically again despite how everybody it you know myself included was i was made uncomfortable by certain elements of it but a lot of people were like straight up pissed about rambo 5 um despite that and and the portrayal of mexico and mexican people in that movie i seem to remember it premiering in mexico um and i i have kind of noticed that that's that's seemingly like a new lane for exploitation cinema i don't i don't read exploitation from this movie memory i feel like rambo last blood is is it actually has arrived in that territory um but yeah there's there's this really kind of iffy like icky uh lane of american like action exploitation cinema that you know in ages past just within my lifetime it's like you know i mean we're i hate to say it but it seems like we're there again um you know when i was super young and my brother as well who's a little bit older than me you know the ussr russia they were they were kind of the catch-all bad guys and if it wasn't that um it was euro terrorists of some sort like in die hard uh, quote terrorists by the way um and then there is a period um you know many dec like post troubles and whatnot where uh, american action cinema was very fearful of uh like fear-mongering of the ira of irish terrorists there's a lot of irish terrorism movies uh, set in the united states um in the 90s in particular um when i was a very little kid uh the la gang war shit was like the go-to for like every action movie or cop movie uh out there um things come in waves and it seems like right now the the finger is firmly pointed at uh probably soon to be russia again um and across the border in mexico um i i think (laughs) i think hollywood is uh as evidenced by um lightyear uh intentionally not screening in china uh i heard that movie was utter crap but but that's beside the point the point is disney slash pixar had an opportunity to put a buzz lightyear movie a cgi animated space themed action adventure movie in chinese theaters where space themed shit is is the bee's knees and they opted not to like things like that disney pulling the plug on on you know free money essentially um points to maybe some rocky relations with you know china and by extension the chinese film industry going forward um I don't think it's going to be anytime soon that we start seeing them show up in, you know, action slash war movies as, you know, the big bad, like Cobra, essentially, to our G.I. Joe. I I don't know if that's going to happen uh, anytime soon, but I'll tell you what, as soon as it starts happening, I'm going to start to get really fucking worried. (laughs) I'm too old for this shit. Anyway, memory. Uh, In case you didn't notice, um, in case you weren't able to infer based on all the shit I've been talking about. Uh, most certainly does deal with affairs in Mexico and uh, themes of like human trafficking and like cross-border police police work and whatnot. Um, and it it results in a movie that feels somewhat fractured, 
Um, I'm not going to go front to back on this one. I took zero notes on this bitch, but um, I'll try my best to, you know, have some thoughtful things to say about the actual movie as opposed to apparently whatever's just on my mind right now. But um, I'm actually going to do something different. And uh, because Kyle is not here, uh, I'm actually going to kick it over to a, a good friend of mine, a Solid Snake, uh, to give us a plot rundown uh, for this movie, uh, Memory. Um, I believe he uh, is on a sneaking mission um, off somewhere in, in Alaska or some shit trying to find uh, a, a bl- official Blu-ray copy so he can read the back of the box on, on this one for you. So, uh, Snake, uh, where you at, bud? This is Snake, Colonel. I'm in front of the Catching Up on Cinema Blu-ray Disposal Facility. We need to get a fix on who they are. Memory follows Alex Lewis, Liam Neeson, an expert assassin caught in a moral quagmire. When Alex refuses to complete a job that violates his code, he must quickly hunt and take down the people who hired him before they and the FBI agent, Vincent Sarah, Guy Pierce, find him first. Alex is built for revenge, but... With a memory that is beginning to falter, he is forced to question his every action, blurring the line between right and wrong. All right, uh, well said, Snake. Thanks for that plot rundown. I couldn't have done it better myself. Um, So yeah, uh, that's the plot rundown for memory. And uh, once again, because Kyle isn't here, I'll just do some of the shit that he would would do uh, and just give us a little rundown of the cast. Um, And that's actually... Um, in addition to the presence of Martin Campbell behind the camera, um, the cast actually was full of a lot of uh, really wonderful surprises for me personally. This is not going to be uh, as uh, probably not relatable for everybody. Like this isn't like going to be a universally um, welcome thing. But for me, like some of the players in this in this movie, like actually made me, you know perk up a little bit. I was like, oh, hey, I know him. Oh, hey, I'm glad to see him. That's really cool. Uh, so let's run through it. So, of course, uh, his his head is essentially the poster. So Liam Neeson is our, quote, star of the movie. Um, we also have Guy Pierce, uh, who is he's doing some character work. Uh, he has a couple of good acting moments. In fact, a lot of people in this movie actually do have good acting. Like, they have good scenes. Um, I don't know if in totality they're offering great performances, but Guy Pierce has a couple of scenes in this movie where it's like, I believe you. Um, not so much the accent, but I, I believe you reading those lines, hopefully not reading them, hopefully reciting them, um, and delivering the emotions that I need to get through this scene. Um, he's he's playing uh, a, a good Guy Pierce role where instead of just being handsome leading man Guy Pierce, which I think is a gross misuse of your guy Pierce uh he's playing kind of a you know duty obsessed kind of uh grody uh cop essentially um and he's dressed down he's made to look really grimy and he has a shitty hairdo bad facial hair (laughs) um some really sharp sideburns that you have to squint to see him because he has that kind of like color hair but um nice addition to the wardrobe but uh the Texan accent Oof, uh, not the best. But, you know, it's it's probably hard to keep that up when, you know, you're supposed to be in Texas slash Mexico, but you're surrounded by Bulgarians. 
um so yeah his accent slips uh, quite noticeably from time to time but um not a bad performance overall uh monica bellucci uh, is in this film and i hate to say it but she seems to be like one of the few like one of the very few uh, in this movie who's not who didn't totally show the fuck up like she's she's monica bellucci so she's captivating and she has a you know a, a specific line delivery and accent that is utterly foreign to my dumb american ears so at the very least she can coast on that but even i could tell it's like yeah i don't think she i don't think she cares like it's like she's probably like burnt out after like mozart in the jungle or some shit she's like i tried the other day but today i'm just gonna drink my coffee and call it a day i'm just gonna coast on this one um we have a fellow named Harold Torres who I do not recognize. However, I would not be surprised if maybe he's known in uh, like foreign markets, like outside the U.S. or something. Uh, Taj Atwal, who I recognized, um, but I could not remember where from. But um, a, a running theme in the cast for this movie is that virtually everyone is not American. Um, this is very much a you know a European cast for the most part. Um, she is British. And uh, Ray Fearson as well, also a face that I thought I recognized, but no, I, I, I don't. Um, I think he's like part of the Harry Potter shit these days, but also British. Um, Daniel DeBorg, don't know him, but he's got a good look. I, I, he looks like a like a, a duskier uh, David Wenham, but he is also British. Um, and we have... Uh, now we get to like the people in the cast that I actually popped for. Like I was like, "Oh, fuck yeah. I didn't even know he was in this, but I'm so glad he is." Uh big one, big dude, uh Ray Stevenson. Uh plays a uh, a paunchy detective in this and uh unlike Guy Pierce, um he's doing some good work with that Texas good old boy accent. Um and uh he has a couple of electric scenes in this movie. Like I I love Ray Stevenson like he, he is welcome in any movie. Like, I, I'm always happy to see him. Uh, he was, like, one of the few guys in that uh, G.I. Joe, uh, not Rise of Cobra, I forget the other one. It's the one with The Rock. He was in that one. He was having fun with that. Um, of course, Punisher Warzone is, like, a guilty pleasure between Kyle and I. Um, we actually reviewed at least one other movie he's been in. Um, but a, a big one recently. Uh, mm sequels due out soon so i guess not that recent but accident man with us or with my boy not our boy uh my boy scott adkins uh he's wonderful in that uh, he's very charming uh, and his his line deliveries and his comedic timing uh despite being a big guy who seemingly was typecast in a lot of big guy action roles um he his, he has wonderful comedic timing uh in particular that uh, uh that uh, the other guys movie uh Kylie Minogue and those little dimples over a woman's arse. <laughs> uh, that line, just that line delivery of Kylie Minogue um, lives rent-free in my head. Uh, love Ray Stevenson. Uh, and the other one, um, also Scott Adkins' connection. Um, connections. Revolutions. Um, once, once again, I need to reiterate, th- th- these are niche players that I wouldn't expect most people to recognize, let alone have positive reactions to when they see them, but uh, Louis Mandalore has exactly one scene in this movie, um, and it's pretty good. <laughs> like it's pretty great. Uh, basically, he's just a drunk fella at a at a hotel bar, and in, it's like a a one take, just like exchange of dialogue, and then he gets slapped, and his face gets slammed into the counter, 
and then like a fucking Looney Tunes cartoon, he 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 just like pops up about ten feet away from the camera. So he like he did like a I don't know a tactical roller like an ukemi after he hit the ground and he like rolled away from the camera and he pops up really tiny in the background and he cusses out Liam Neeson. That's literally all he does in the movie. But uh, Louis Mandalore uh, in recent years has been uh, putting in a lot of work with a. Scott Adkins is, you know, directing buddy, uh, Jesse V. Johnson. Um, in fact, he did, a, I think, a couple of movies uh, without uh, Scott Adkins uh, with Jesse V. Johnson. I think The Mercenary um, and Hell Hath No Fury, uh, if memory serves. Uh, I've, I've liked Louis Mandalore for a long time. Uh, he, I, he dropped off my radar for a really, really long time. But when, uh, when Debt Collectors came out, um, I was really happy to see him um and it's i continue to be happy to see him very similar to ray stevenson in pretty much everything he does um but yeah uh martin campbell as director um i need to roll it back for just a second i'm sorry this is mostly just a movie talking about the movie rather than talking around the movie i guess so uh, if you're into this kind of conversation i hope it i hope this will be fun for you uh, it's sounding like I'm probably not going to get into a whole lot of detail about the movie itself. Um, but I will, at the very least, point out things I liked and things I didn't. So it'll be a podcast, is what I'm saying. Eventually, half an hour from now, well, it'll be a podcast. So uh, Martin Campbell, um, you, you, dear listener, I'm not positive if you, if you would know who this fella is, but um, he's a Kiwi. Uh, he's from New Zealand. And... Uh, I I really really like him. Uh, his name is a selling point for me because in a lot of ways he, he he his films served as like punctuation marks, like like exclamation points um, in my early cinema diet. Um, he he made some movies that were important to me and a lot of my contemporaries. Um, only problem with that is that uh, his his track record. Uh, he hit a wall at a certain point and it seems like he's still working to climb over that wall um, and I don't know if he ever will um, so let me just give a rundown of his filmography because it's actually not that dense but uh, there's tons of movies in here that I, I would love to talk about in, in gross detail someday so um, first couple of decades of his career I have nothing to say about um, but I'll just run through it uh, in its entirety. So The Sex Thief uh, was in 1973. That was his first feature, and that was a British sex comedy. Uh, Three for All, uh, also a musical comedy. Uh, Eskimo Nell, uh, The Sexy Saga of Naughty Nell and Big Dick. Uh, sounds like an adult film. Uh, Intimate Games uh, also sounds like a sex comedy. So he basically did nothing but musicals and sex comedies uh, up until 1988. So he began 73, and then you get to 88, and he uh, hops over to the U.S. seemingly for the first time in the form of a movie called Criminal Law, uh, starring Gary Oldman and Kevin Bacon. It received generally negative reviews. Uh, in spite of that, I'm going to have to tell Kyle about that, because I think we, he and I both share mutual appreciation for both of those actors, um, Kyle especially is a huge fan of Gary Oldman um, I'd really like to check that out um, and then Defenseless in 1991 I know nothing about that one neat poster though 
Uh, so my my relationship with Martin Campbell begins um, officially with 1995, which is of course Goldeneye. Um, but the year before that, there's a little movie called No Escape, which I've heard is kind of a, a middling like science fiction action movie. Uh, however, I just need to point out that um, I remember ads for this being like plastered relentlessly over every comic book, like every DC slash Marvel comic book that came into our household around then. Um, so they were definitely marketing to like the the young teens, uh, but I. I have yet to actually meet anyone face to face who's seen this movie, but I'll never forget the poster art just because every comic I flipped through around then in the nineties had a poster of this one, uh, either on the back or in the middle or something. Um, fire in the sky also, uh, is another nineties movie that I haven't seen, but I know it by reputation. And I saw that goddamn poster like every month or so. Um, but yeah, 1995 golden I think, uh, one of the, I think it was maybe second or third James Bond movie released in my lifetime. Big fucking deal. Um, really, really, really big fucking deal. Um, and it, it changed everything, uh, for, for me. Like, like I had watched plenty of James Bond movies up to 1995. Um, I mean, we had cable, so like TNT or TBS or whatever would pretty routinely have James Bond marathons and my dad was a fan so I saw you know all the Conneries and Moores and Daltons and stuff and that guy Lazenby I saw all that um but when when one came out that was for me um that was that was the difference maker and uh, as a result I probably have a unwarranted like appreciation for Goldeneye like I probably give it a few like a, a full star bump um, than it actually deserves just just because of nostalgia and because of what it meant to me but um to continue the streak though the mask of zorro in 1998 holy fucking shit uh talk talk about uh great fucking movies um i i love the mask of zorro um it's a it's a wonderful film it's really well put together it has absolutely spectacular old school uh action and stunts and miniature work and stuff uh in 1998, Catherine Zeta-Jones uh, was really, really, really important uh, to myself and a lot of my contemporaries. So thanks for that uh, casting department. Um, yeah, the one-two punch of those movies was a huge deal. But then we get into some stuff that uh, I don't have anything to say about. So Vertical Limit uh, is notable, I guess, in that it has Bill Paxton in it, which is always a good thing. But also it's you know one of those... Uh, post Batman and Robin uh, Chris O'Donnell movies where it's like we need someone who's like good looking and affable but like cheap it's like how about that Chris O'Donnell guy it's like, yeah sure let's throw him in the movie and let's put all of our actual money into like rendering the, the mountain and shit um, I've heard that's not very good but you know is what it is beyond borders I don't even know what that is but uh, Angelina Jolie and Clint oh Clive Owen in 2003 so that's like when he was certainly on the come up like he was he was a really really big deal for a minute there and then he seemingly just bamfed out of existence um legend of zorro sucks ass i i i I like rufus sewell um i like antonio banderas i i love catherine zeta jones but um this movie had way too much kid uh, in it. Uh, the boy, the little boy in this movie and some of the staging, the action, it's like in stark contrast uh, to the Mask of Zorro that was so 
had such a lovely texture to it and had such a such a passion for uh, paying homage to the you know the Buster Keaton stunt work of old and like the old Zorro serial and whatnot. This one just like was so artificial and just ugly to look at, and it, it even the sense of humor just wasn't there. But uh, 2006 Casino Royale, t- shut up and take my money. Um, one of the very best Bond movies, if you ask me. Um, top to the bottom, uh, it offers a lot of things that not every Bond movie can claim to offer. The staging of the stunt work and the uh, the the editing um, and the soundtrack and how everything flows together so beautifully is truly outstanding. Uh, some some truly amazing set piece sequences, um, and Daniel Craig really really stepped up to the plate and and made a statement with his initial going his initial offering as Bond. Uh, really amazing movie has a lot more emotional depth than your average Bond movie and uh, can confirm uh, the the girlfriend uh, it's girlfriend approved and not ev- not not every action movie is so say that much but um, then there was like four years where he did nothing and uh, we got Edge of Darkness which I believe is a uh, I think it's a adaptation of a BBC series or movie I can't remember what but it was originally a British project. Um, and this was kind of the movie that quietly gave Mel Gibson some somewhat mainstream work during that stretch where we weren't really talking about Mel. Um, and if you ask me, uh, Edge of Darkness is a fine little like conspiracy thriller. <laughs> See what I did there? Mel Gibson, conspiracy thriller? Uh, conspiracy theory, that is. Um, has some neat stuff. Uh, I will say this much: the uh, the throwing of hands that happens in the early goings in the movie, the the fist fight between Mel um, and I think his daughter's like boyfriend or something. Uh, some really, really, really bad doubling in that sequence. It's like that that is not Mel. Oh, that's not Mel either. Why do we, why am I not watching Mel do this scene? It's like they sh- they really needed to like adjust the way they framed uh, some of those shots or, or had him do the you know the the earmuffs posture where it's like i'm i'm moving in a really strange way and it's it has nothing to do with me trying to cover my face so you can't tell that i'm not mel gibson um really terrific shotgun blast in the early beginning like early goings in that movie by the way really really nasty squib work <laughs> um yeah i kind of liked edge of darkness i thought it was a a quaint little conspiracy action movie uh during a time when we we're seemingly and people people complain about this even today that we seemingly are continually moving away from these low to mid-budget action thrillers um i always reason that um that's actually not true um you're just not looking for them anymore you're 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 you need to actually look for these movies these days um either be it you know through Redbox or uh you know probing the depths of like the streaming stuff that isn't put on the front the front page of whatever service you're using these movies are still very very much being made as evidenced by scott adkins having a thriving career in the past several years um i reason that you folks are just not looking for them um but then we finally come to the point in the filmography um that probably bears the most mention um I mentioned there was a uh, a mountain or a, a wall. I think I referred to it as that uh, Mr. Campbell ran into. Uh, that wall, if you're not aware, uh, is a little movie from 2011 by the name of Green Lantern. 
which is of course headlined by Ryan Reynolds and featured, I don't know if they were married at the time, but Blake Lively's also in there. Um, this movie tanked like really, really, really bad. And not only that, it was also a grossly mismanaged production, which, you know, I hadn't heard was ever the case with Martin Campbell's productions up to this point. So that was a little bit of a shocker. But um, the stories that I remember reading about this were that uh, the the way they opted to film the uh, motion capture uh, for the Green Lantern suit effect, apparently that was really poorly planned. Um, and it resulted in a lot of extra man hours or per people hours, uh, just a lot of extra work a lot of expensive work uh, that went into rendering all of that properly, a lot of it by hand, like a lot of animation had to be tweaked by hand and whatnot. I mean, I seem to remember there was also a lot of restructuring of the plot. Um, as, as, as a result, the movie was put through a wood chipper in, in the editing process, in addition to all the issues with the, the post-production CGI and whatnot. It was a total fucking mess. And what's more, it's not a good movie. Uh, it's really not. Um, it's very boring. Uh, it, it really fails to grab you. Um, but what's, what's funny about it to me, though, is that I mentioned Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively are in this. They're both doing just fucking fine. Like, like Ryan Reynolds is, you know, just casually buying soccer teams. He's, he's, his face is everywhere. He's got Mint Mobile and shit. He's married to Blake Lively. And, of course, Blake Lively's still got a thriving career as well. Not only that, Peter Sarsgaard plays a villain in it. And... I think it's curious that uh, he actually would end up going on to be in uh, the Batman recently. Uh, so I guess he, he's one of those actors, one of those Chris Evanses out there that has uh, m- has more than one comic book character uh, on their fil- on their filmography. Um, so he played Hector Hammond in Green Lantern, and then he played uh, I forget the character's name, but point is he was in another DC Comics movie very very recently. So. He's doing fine, too. Everybody's doing fine, except for Marty Campbell, uh, who, as far as I understand, this was this was the, the movie that really fucked up his career. <laughs> uh, because everything up to that, like I said, like Vertical Limit, Beyond Borders, Defenseless, there's some movies in here I, I have nothing to say about, but I don't remember hearing of them being like gross failures or utter flops. And, and in the interim, he was making some fantastic shit. <laughs> Um, but then you come to Green Lantern, and then there is six years before he does anything. <laughs> um, and the next thing he's got is uh, the Jackie Chan headlined, uh, and also Pierce Brosnan co-starring uh, The Foreigner, which I personally have not seen, uh, which is kind of a bummer, because I've heard this one, I wouldn't call it like a, an outright return to form, but I've heard it has something, it has something to offer, like, like, I, I used the phrase uh, post-taken years, I think, uh, during the intro portion of this episode. And this movie very much seemed to be in that same vein, although albeit with Jackie Chan at the, uh, you know, at the forefront of the cast rather than Liam Neeson. Um, and I remember seeing the trailers for it and thinking, you know, that looks like it has at least some energy. It has some life to it. Um, and as far as I know, it's not it's not terrible. Um but then he wouldn't do anything again until 2021 in the form of the protege, which I believe went direct to video and or uh, Redbox. And it's headlined by Maggie Q. Um, and it does the classic uh, spy movie thing of having a couple of like heavy hitter act, like straight up actors in the cast, not like action heavy guys, but like 
like just big name actors to put on the poster in the form of Michael Keaton and Samuel L. Jackson. Um, I haven't bothered with the protege. Um, to be 100% honest, Maggie Q is not really a selling point for me. Um, Hollywood was really hot for her at one point, and I think they still are. Uh, I seem to remember she had like a, a pretty high-profile television series pretty recently. In fact, it may still be going, but like around the time of like Live Free or Die Hard and uh, Mission Impossible 3, like they were really pushing her like pretty hard. Like they weren't giving her like big acting roles, but they were putting her in big projects. And I don't know, I just didn't get a whole lot. It's like give it like yeah, I, I'll just leave it at that. Like Maggie Q, you go you go do your thing, I'll do I'll do mine. Uh which of course brings us to memory. Um and the the road to memory um has been a it's been a it's been a weird one like like for Liam Neeson is what I'm alluding to um just I mean I know I know there's some controversy with the man because of uh things he said in front of uh hot microphones uh in regards to people of other ethnicities or uh or races um that was dumb probably shouldn't have done that shit um but it just needs to be said like like that's that stuff aside like that that awkwardness aside um it's hard for me to explain or quantify but um i've always i've always been drawn to liam neeson um my mom always my mom always theorized that it had to do with his uh his facial structure because um my family isn't pug-faced by any means but like a prominent nose and, and like the particular construction of like his brow ridge is very 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 different from from anyone in in my family um i've always felt that the camera absolutely loves his bone structure um and you combine that again with like it's the monica bellucci effect where it's like you you combine it with that that irish that irish delivery that's like liam neeson has that arnold schwarzenegger quality to him that schwarzeneggerian quality to him where it's like I understand that like you you may feel compelled to include like a line of dialogue in there saying like oh yeah like his parents emigrated to the states in the 90s or, or like in the 70s they were fleeing the troubles or something like that just to you, you would see that in a lot of Schwarzenegger and Van Damme movies where it's like we need to put a line of dialogue like a line of dialogue in there explaining why this guy sounds the way he does uh, because he he just cannot suppress it like even even in instances where he attempts to it's like there's still just like a little hint of something in there and, and i never have a problem with it it's just it's just funny that it's, it's always there <laughs> um but yeah i've always i've always liked liam neeson um and as evidenced by the fact that he's worked with some of the greats uh, in the form of you know the spielbergs and the scorseses in recent years even uh over the years um he's got the goods like like he is a very 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 talented actor however there was uh, again the post taken years um that i like to refer to it as where um the story goes i actually haven't ever researched this but the story goes um his wife died or was ill and then died um and then the way i interpreted it if that is in fact true uh, is that he i don't know just wanted to work um and you know part of part of part of con- like continuously working like because his schedule his output like his schedule during these years was actually like kind of nuts honestly by by like major hollywood actor standards 
um, he was putting out multiple movies a year. Um, I I, I want to say that he was intentionally kind of veering towards movies that, you know, maybe had a physical element to them. Um, that wasn't necessarily the selling point. It was more just like something less demanding, you know, from an acting standpoint, just like something you can show up for, do a good job and move on uh, rather than something you have to like destroy your your psychology or your you know emotional core in order to embody a you know like heavy dramatic role uh for a project that takes 14 months of your life to complete or something it's like no let's just crank this shit out let's you know let's get it done um so he had he had a lot of good ones he had a, he had a lot of crap ones but you know i think i think from what i saw in this movie in particular um because i've actually like pretty seriously fallen off the the Liam Neeson uh train uh in recent years although I, I'm kind of wanting to like get back on like like go back and check out the ones I missed um so like I'm just tracing my 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 dealings with this fella backwards so like 2018 the commuter that's one that I can point to um that's one that I own uh Jome Colette Seurat. that's a very 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 important name uh, in his filmography, uh, Jome Colette Sora uh, is a wonderful uh, schlock auteur. Um, I love that he seemingly uh, he seemingly specializes in taking kind of like in a like a Takashi Miike kind of way, like taking an okay script and then just assaulting it with style um, and and really emphasizing presentation. Um, to such an extent that it actually transforms it from like a straight up like red box garbage movie into like a, a mid mid budget action movie very much worthy of theaters i i, I really 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 like jome colette um and by extension i've really liked what he's done with liam neeson um a lot of their movies aside from if he directed unknown that's like the one I can point to outright and say that sucks. That movie. I mean, you brought back Aiden Quinn. That makes me happy, but fuck that movie. It kind of sucks. Um, aside from that one, if he did indeed direct it, I don't actually know if he did, um, and I'm not gonna look it up. Um, most of his dealings with Neeson have been very, very good. Um, a lot of the movies during this time period uh, that didn't involve uh, Mr. Colette Sora. Uh, is not great uh so like cold pursuit i know was another uh remake of a uh, i believe it's a scandinavian film um that was okay uh, it it was it was not rewatchable i actually picked that one up from like a secondhand store i watched it once and I actually ended up like waiting a few months and returning it uh to, the, to that secondhand store sorry um yeah cold pursuit not great um, Men in Black International, Ordinary Love. I'm just going to skip over all that shit. Honest Thief from 2020. I gave that one a chance because there was a slim chance uh, that Liam ne I would get to see the most wonderful sight in uh, cinematic history. That would be Liam Neeson punching Jai Courtney. I did get to see that, but it's like literally two, two strikes. It's like, I don't know if Jai Courtney has like a, a Dwayne The Rock Johnson clause in his contract these days, but very 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 disappointed with the throwing of hands in that movie honest thief is cheap in in fun ways where it's like 
I love watching like low budget movies of that caliber where it's like it has recognize recognizable faces um and it has like decent production values but it doesn't have great production values i really delight in watching movies of that budget and resource range um the honest thief is bleh. like that was one i didn't i didn't spend any money on i just watched it and and that was kind of where where i i just like clapped my hands together and said i'm out uh because i i i've been off the neeson train since then i know the marksman came out speaking of movies that i have to assume are hypercritical of across the border affairs and people's um, maybe in an uncomfortable sense. Uh, the marketing for The Marksman appeared to be one of those. I didn't bother with that one. Um, I, the Ice Road? Um, oh, that's the Liam Neeson in a, in a truck movie. Fuck. Um, I might actually check that out. <laughs> I kind of want to watch both of those. Um, but there was another Liam Neeson movie from 2022 called Blacklight. Um, that see what's funny about all of these is that you, you may have noticed even if I haven't seen these I have something to say about all of them because I keep I keep tabs on my man I don't I don't I can't allow my I just can't allow myself to watch all of his stuff as it comes out like I said I am I am probably going to work my way back through backwards through any and all of the movies that I've mentioned that include at least one instance of him slugging someone in the trailer any, anything with like heartfelt emotion or like hugs or like you know feelings and shit no i'm not here for that i'm, I'm here to watch post taken era liam neeson uh, clumsily deliver knuckle sandwiches to people's doorstep <laughs> um blacklight holy shit i heard this sucked um to the point that like i i tried to look up like if there were any like highlights on a uh, on youtube or something i couldn't find any in fact i found some video that was like I think it was sketchily titled like Liam Neeson Blacklight 2022 fight scene. Um, there was no violence in that entire three minute clip. I was deeply upset by that. That wasted three minutes of my life. But I have heard Blacklight is very cheap and very bad. Um, might be checking it out. Uh, which brings us to memory. Um, which, you know, I guess this is the part where I actually tell you how I feel about this movie. Uh, memory's not terrible. Um, it's, it's not good. Like it's, it's very clunky. Um, and a big, like, it's important to note that, uh, Martin Campbell does know how to make a film. Uh, so the production values are there. Like the budget is not, but the production values are there. There's a lot of camera movement and setups and lighting that feel, that feel like somebody knows what they're doing. Like this isn't just a shot reverse shot movie. This isn't like lock down the camera on a tripod and and go make a movie it's like no we actually have like dollies we actually you know make extensive use of stock drone photography because we are most certainly in bulgaria which is not el paso but we're really 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 trying to render el paso in the form of uh, a single it's like a, it's like a single street corner essentially that i'm almost 100 percent certain uh, is actually one of the same sets they used in the Expendables Two. It's that it's that like fabricated American uh, neighborhood where they meet Chuck Norris uh, in Expendables Two. If you've seen it, um, and while I'm on the subject of uh, sets and settings and whatnot, um, without without actually checking, um, I am ninety nine. No, I'm I am a hundred percent certain. 
uh, that the hospital uh, towards the end of this movie where Liam Neeson is housed and then spoiler alert, uh, killed. Um, I think that's the, I, I don't think I know, uh, that is the same building as, uh, m- the majority of, uh, Scott Adkins movie, uh, Boyka colon undisputed takes place. Uh, so the arena where like the bad guy is and like where the, you know, all the tournament fights and like the final showdown happens where they, they have the final showdown on at the exterior, like in the parking area, 100% certain that is the exact same building. Um, so my, my Bulgaria radar was, was going beep, 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 beep. I had, I had tone Eagle one Fox three. Um, yeah. Uh, but the point I'm trying to emphasize is that this, this looks like a movie. Like it, it aside from a couple of, uh, like aside from the liberal use of stock footage to render El Paso uh, to, to you know passively sell Bulgaria as El Paso, aside from that, and a couple of uh, not so great uh, projections, like green screen projections of the city skyline um, in a Monica Bellucci's like loft, like in her like office or whatever, those didn't look great. Um, aside from that, looks great, looks fine, like it looks like a movie. Um, so it and also by extension the editing also follows suit where it's it's edited with an even hand i never found myself confused by anything we don't have any um was it olivier megaton uh situations with a uh, taken three it's it's a it's a liam neeson meme uh if you're not aware of it uh google uh, liam neeson hops a fence and you will be taken to a uh, youtube clip a few seconds long of i think it's 13 cuts in the span of a couple of seconds uh, to render the image of Liam Neeson hopping over a fence in some part of LA. Uh, Taken 3 is awful. (laughs) Um, I would actually favor Taken 2 over 3. 3 was awful, and not only that, my car got stolen uh, when I went to see Taken 3, so I have a particular... (laughs) like, venom in my soul uh, for, for... Taken three uh, because when I came out of the theater, me and my ex girlfriend uh, did not find my car, um, and I was pretty fucking pissed. Um, but yeah, uh, the editing is not like that in memory. It, it's pretty clear. Um, and what's more, um, they actually make they actually factor in Liam Neeson's uh, age and just outright physical capability um, in how they shoot and edit the action scenes, of which there are very few. Um, but he does get physical a couple of times, and actually, um, a thing I've noticed with Martin Campbell is that he's wise to punctuate like a lot of the like the action beats, like a lot of the uh, I don't know if if there's like martial arts or fist fighting in his movies, he's he's prone to include like use of props or just like some some form of escalation that adds some punch to the scene. So instead of just like two guys hitting each other, like in, in the case of this movie, it's like, no, we're, we're not going to just punch each other. Uh, we're also going to have somebody's head get put into a, a, a car window or slammed into a, a rear view mirror or something. Um, just to add that little exclamation point that let, that lends impact, you know. Um, and what I was referring to when I mentioned that the editing and the shooting seems to have been done knowing full well that they're dealing with Liam Neeson, who, despite being virtually contemporary, virtually a contemporary of Keanu Reeves, is, of course, nowhere near as well-preserved as Keanu Reeves, nor as limber. Uh, Keanu Reeves is quite limber. 
he does he does Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He can twist people and himself into pretzels and then, you know, return to normal and whatnot. He's a stretch armstrong of a human being. Um, Liam Neeson is not that limber, nor is he that agile, nor has he ever been. Uh, so the way they shoot uh, what little throwing of hands has to happen in this movie is very... It's clearly filmed with his limitations in mind, and as a result, uh, it doesn't come across as overly clunky or it doesn't make him look bad i guess is what i'm saying they they protect him i mean i i appreciate that however um just based on the couple of seconds of physicality uh, that he he performs in this movie um i will say i think this might be a good stopping point for him uh because a couple more years of this and it might actually get to that point where it's embarrassing um I haven't really seen him outright embarrass himself when it comes to like physicality on film just yet. I've seen him not look as good as he could. Um, I've definitely seen weaknesses in his physical performances and whatnot, but it's never been like, oh man, you got to stop. Um, but what I saw here was, was shot and edited well to an extent that he doesn't come across as lacking or anything but I, I think if if the filmmaker if the crew is having to protect you to that extent maybe don't do those roles uh much longer um but yeah uh, the biggest biggest issue i had with the movie overall uh wasn't the action i thought that what little there was was fine uh, there's a nice little uh, pistol shootout in a parking garage that ends with that moment where uh like i said someone gets their head put through a window that was pretty cool um, and in fact, the structuring of that scene was pretty cool. Just the 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 movement and uh and the way the way it's edited together flows very nicely for as for as long as it lasts. But um, I didn't have much issue with the action in this movie. What I did have issue with was the the plot progression because this is a movie where it's trying to have two plots running parallel to each other, and it runs into that problem where one of them is vastly more compelling than the other. Um, and unfortunately it's not the one that occupies the majority of the screen time. So essentially our two plots are Liam Neeson is a, a hitman who is, uh, developing like Alzheimer's disease. Um, and it's coming on really fast. Um, and he's starting to have, uh, issues with his memory title drop. Um, and he, comes into conflict with uh, his employer in the form of him not wanting to kill a child um but he, there there's the plot where we follow him that i found to be fascinating and i could i could follow that story for two hours no problem this this movie is just shy of two hours but liam neeson uh, delivers from a performance standpoint problem is he's not in that much of this movie um, and a lot of the a lot of the routes I would have hoped that they would go down uh, in terms of exploring his character and his particular ailment um, or affliction or however you want to phrase it, um, they kind of shy away uh, from really, really, really getting into it, uh, which I found to be a bit of a, a missed opportunity. But like I said, the real problem comes in the form of Guy Pierce and his Scooby Squad of a. Uh, FBI slash border police um, investigating child trafficking. Their their story occupies the majority of the screen time in this film, um, and I'm sorry, it's just not half as compelling as Liam Neeson as a performer or his particular character. 
Um, it, it we just endlessly cut back and forth between like a couple of seconds of Liam Neeson doing some like interesting stuff that allows for interesting visual filmmaking um, to them to the Scooby Squad at <laughs> at the fucking police department. Ex- just like dumping exposition, talking about like how the case is progressing and what to do next, and um, the flow is it 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 fails to find a rhythm uh, that really works uh, for large stretches of the movie, and it's it's very frustrating because um, Liam Neeson, like I said, at, in recent years, aside from uh, Silence, uh, his his collaboration with Martin Scorsese. Um, aside from that and maybe a handful of other movies, he really hasn't been doing like heavy dramatic work uh, very often. Um, however, in this movie, that easily he easily didn't have to apply himself as much as he did. Um, he has some dramatic work in here that really, really did work for me. Um, the scene with his brother, I found to be very compelling. I found that to be very believable. Um, Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's dementia and whatnot. Um, it's a it's a highly personal thing. Um, I, you know, I have some familiarity with it uh, within the family, and it, it's it's intense. Uh, it's something that you know maybe maybe you would laugh it off or something, but for for me, like I was like, oh fuck, that's that's sad. Like that that's just outright sad. Um, and I didn't found I didn't find it to be overplayed. Like I didn't find it to be overacted. And more importantly, I'm really glad that the movie had enough sense um, to not linger on that where it's like we just have that one scene i don't need i don't need to cut back to the brother and like see that he's like recovering or some shit or he learned to talk again or something it's like no just that one scene that was great um another really really great scene um is uh when liam neeson is wounded in this movie uh he gets gut shot in this movie and we actually actually get a uh a rambo three moment with or a I mean, it's been in so many fucking movies. It's an action movie trope. Um, I believe this was in The Killer as well with Chow Yun-Fat, uh, the John Woo-directed film, where basically you put gunpowder um, in a in a, in a a wound and then you, you set it on fire to cauterize it like a badass. Uh, Rambo 3 had probably the best one where it like... It looks like, he, it looks like a fucking road flare or like a Roman candle shooting out of both his back and his front at the same time. Um in this case, I think it's like he puts like liquor or something on his uh, on his midsection or something. But um, his physical acting here, no dialogue, just just the sight of him in pain and really, really, really selling that pain um, was really effective. <laughs> like I, I bought it. Like I, I really believed it. Um, and while, while I'm on the subject of that scene in particular, um, I think it's funny that like when you're watching movies like this, occasionally you find yourself thinking of like other movies that they remind you of. Um, and this case, like I found myself thinking about um, both other movies of this director of Martin Campbell, as well as Liam Neeson. So like, for instance, uh, the type of pistol that Liam Neeson uses in this, I think it's, they call it, I think it's a six sour. Uh, so it's not a, it's not a Walter. Um, but the, the shape of it, the silhouette of it, actually bears a very strong resemblance to a PPK, which is, of course, the you know quintessential James Bond handgun. Uh, I I think they returned to the PPK at some point, uh, or the PPKS or whatever it is. Um, I know, like during the Pierce Brosnan days, um, 
they switched it over to the P99 or whatever. But I seem to remember maybe in the Daniel Craig era, uh, I think they rolled it back. I'm not positive on that. But anyway, the, the handgun that Liam Neeson uses in this, most certainly just the silhouette of it. I know it's not the same gun, like, and I'm not a gun nut out there. I'm not a gun nut, so I don't know these things. But I know what... I know shapes. I, I went to art school. I know shapes and shit. Um, it looks kind of similar to a Walter PPK. Um, and then this scene, uh, Liam Neeson has a he has a secret hideout in this movie that's under a bakery. Um, and something about the dusty, dingy nature of it and the fact that he returns to it repeatedly as he's like trying to enact his vigilante schemes I really thought of Dark Man, which is, of course, you know, the Sam Raimi and Liam Neeson movie from the you know early 90s. Uh, one of the first things I ever saw him in, actually. Um, it, I couldn't help but think of that as well. Um, and there's a lot of little details here and there that made me think of stuff like that. It was really funny. Um, also, the plot of this movie um, and the fact that it's an adaptation of a, a European production made me think of Edge of Darkness, uh, which is, of course another martin campbell movie um but yeah in, in in all i had no issue with liam neeson's performance i did however have issue as i said uh with the way his character is utilized um the way he makes his exit by traditional action movie standards is uh it's a letdown um it, it really is a fart in the wind or a wet noodle as my buddy brad from the cinema speak podcast would call it um However, that's kind of what I was getting at when I, I I tried very clumsily to point out that this is adapted seemingly somewhat faithfully from a European project. Um, and now this is once again me showing my uh, ugly American card uh, once again. Um, but I, I feel like that actually does have some bearing on on some of the expected elements of how stories like this are told. Because like Edge of Darkness, for instance, has, like without spoiling that movie, I am spoiling this movie, but without spoiling Edge of Darkness, that movie doesn't exactly have the happiest of endings. Um, and then it, it's not related, being as it's a French film, but it, it reminds me of when I was young and uh, I watched uh, Brotherhood of the Wolf. And there was a part towards the end of that where a lot of the main cast of the film um and like basically there's like a a conspiracy going on and i i believe the story was there's like a, a monster uh in terrorizing the countryside and it's found to not not be true like it's they they actually solved the mystery but then the the main cast of the movie instead for like some form of greater good decides to continue the lie to some extent like to me, you know, as a, a lifelong ugly American, that felt like something you wouldn't see uh, in in your average, you know, mainstream American like action slash sci-fi or fantasy film. It just seemed it seemed like a a different seemed very different from a philosophical standpoint, I guess, like different sensibilities. Um, and what I'm trying to get to here, that's taking me far too many words and way too many brain cells to, to get out, um, is that because this is a fairly faithful adaptation of uh, of both a novel and a... Oh, it's actually, it's a Belgian film, I'm sorry. 
Um, the girlfriend is Dutch, so if I if I mislabel things as Dutch or not Dutch, um, I, I get punished for that. So fuck. <laughs> um, um, as as an adaptation of Europe, a European story, um, I feel like the resolution of this one, wherein our quote hero, he is absolutely not a hero. He's a terrible person, in fact. Um, our hero meets a grisly end, roughly fifteen to twenty minutes before the final credits. And then the conspiracy's kind of like swept under the rug, but then also resolved via vigilante means that have nothing to do with the main character himself. It felt it felt like a, a little bit of a swerve that again you probably wouldn't find in your average action thriller from from the states. Um, but yeah, uh, the main problem I had with this movie is just the the. The presence of the Scooby Squad and the fact that they have more screen time than Liam Neeson because they do start to touch on some neat stuff with him and his memory loss. Like they start to, but then they really just don't go far enough with it. Where I like that he starts babbling a little bit towards the end of the movie. That's something I would have liked to have seen emerge earlier in the movie. Um, and I like that he the the bit with the firing pin was was really good because i knew it was coming but when it happens it's like yeah yeah not surprised um he's a, he's a compelling character um but i kind of wish they had made him uglier i guess because he's he's not a good person and he's he's actually very well aware of that um although he's losing his faculties so it's like it's becoming less relevant to him and there's moments here and there where he's acting on instinct and it's leading him to continue to do bad things. But the movie shies away from like really, really punishing or alienating him, I guess. Um, I, I really would have liked this movie to focus maybe just squarely on him. Like, I, I think that would have been frustrating, but also really interesting to, to really stick along, stick around with this character. And, uh, like step into his perspective where it's like everything's everything's weird and scary to him now but he's a person with forgive the reference but a particular set of skills and therefore it makes him extraordinarily dangerous uh even if he can't remember where his bed is where like where he's going to be bedding down that night or where he left his keys or who his family is um, I would have found that story to be much, much more compelling than the, I don't know, the iffy uh, sociopolitical shit they had going on about human trafficking. And I hate to say it, but uh, that's something I, I've been trying not to talk about with this movie. But I really hope that I didn't just watch like a QAnon movie or some shit <laughs> um, because um, there is a, uh, I don't know, like a, a pedophilia angle in this uh, in this film that uh Oof. Uh, I mean, it's it's like, do, does the story really need to be about this? And do we need to see as much of this shit as we do? But then I keep reminding myself, it's like, oh my god, there's a there's a pretty big subsect of people in this country that, and you know, around the globe too, that that you know, that's that's what they're preoccupied with. So I really hope that that wasn't shoehorned into the script or something to play to that particular audience. Um, because yeah, that, that's not something I want to deal with, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I found that stuff to be like, I, I guess it's, 
topical maybe but i i would much rather watch a movie about an interesting character than you know shit that i deliberately avoid reading about on the internet because yeah i have better things to do with my life um anyway uh yeah that's uh that's memory uh, i think i'm out of gas with this one but i oh by the way ray stevenson like i said he gets a couple of electric scenes in this movie i liked the interrogation room sequence with him and uh liam neeson he turns into like full-on supervillain mode i would love to see him you know like do some more mainstream film work i really like him and uh i i don't know if he's in thor 4 i i can't remember if i think his character was supposed to be killed at like the beginning of infinity war or some shit i don't remember i'm like way off of the mcu stuff like i'm not like not off as in like i'm done with it but like i haven't i'm a few movies behind <laughs> like, like i don't know shit um and i don't really care it's it's actually probably better that i don't um but yeah uh, this was memory uh, directed by Martin Campbell from the year 2022. So this was a contemporary release. Uh, I am really hoping that we can get Kyle back next week so uh, I don't have to talk to myself for an hour or two. Um, and also the <laughs> so I can prevent myself from having to subject myself to middling uh, low-budget action cinema. Um, Kyle generally, he like his presence ups the the class level like like as he's as he's prone to tell me i've watched more french films than you and he's not wrong it's true kyle generally likes good movies not the case with myself uh so maybe we'll get a good movie next week who knows um but in the meantime folks at home if you would like to catch up on any of our catching up on cinema content uh, you can do so uh, by navigating to our website at catchinguponcinema.com um, and you can also find us on the social medias in the form of the Twitter at Catching Cinema, as well as the Instagram at Catching Up on Cinema. So feel free to hit me up at either of those. Uh, and the podcast is available on pretty much every platform you can imagine, including Bitcade. So fucking Google it. That being said, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time.